The title for today's talk is The Middle Way is Not the Ostrich Way. That is to say, it's not the way of the ostrich which is said to bury its head in the sand to um, avoid unpleasant confrontations. But let me first clarify this term, the middle way, which is, of course, a term in wide use among Buddhist practitioners. And it refers to the fact that the Buddha himself labeled his teachings the teachings of the middle way. Or at least that's the way this label was translated into English, which uh, does... uh, lead to some misunderstandings. In fact, uh, last April in a retreat, I gave a a talk companion to this in a way uh, entitled The Middle Way is Not the Halfway. Again, the misunderstanding that this terminology lends itself to. Uh, maybe helpful if I start by recapping that particular talk, uh, uh, bringing up a few points that I made in that talk about the halfway before I refer to the so-called ostrich way. To follow the middle way, and that's what the Buddha emphasized, is to refrain to fall into the trap of polarizing our options. This polarizing practice, if you wish, habit, the habit of polarizing, it's uh, made very clear in a central teaching of the Buddha called the teaching of dependent arising. This teaching, which some of you may be familiar with, others not, the Buddha says, whenever an object of attention and our consciousness make contact, whenever there is contact between the consciousness and an object of attention, the, the first reaction is something called Vedana, in in the language of the Buddha, which is how it feels. And basically, it feels pleasant, it feels unpleasant, or it feels somewhere in between. This is highlighted. And easily the next step we slip into is I feel pleasant. I feel displeasure. I feel pleasure. I feel displeasure. Or whatever. If it's pleasure, I want it. I reach out for it. I cling to it. And in the process, the I gets 
puffed up. Having created the eye and puffed it up, the eye has no way to go but down. Because whatever the object of our allure is, it's not going to stay as it is. Our look in the mirror is not going to be always as it used to be. Our beautiful jacket or whatever it is, it's going to wear off. Clearly, the allure of the pleasant doesn't last. And if our I, our being depends on that, it can go nowhere but down. Of course, then we go chasing after something else and after something else. If the reaction is displeasure, then again we create an I around that. I don't want it, I push it away, I hate it. And we use the polarity to fabricate the I, the victim, again. The successful I, the victim I, are just fabrications which can only end in disaster, in suffering. Yet, in order to support this dependent arising sequence, we create polarities. Pleasant and pleasant, good and evil, love and hate, friend and enemy, etc., how do we avoid this polarities and being falling into the trap of puffing up the eye from them one way is an in between option doesn't really satisfy anything you know we won't be playing a game of uh, baseball whatever We want to win, fantastic. We are defeated, agony, victim. But the solution is not a draw, it's not a tie. That simply postpones the search for another high or another low at another occasion. So, this is what I meant by the halfway option. It doesn't work. The true middle way is a totally, a radically different alternative. It simply deals with things as they are, not polarizing. It's amazing how dismal we find this prospect in our habitual lives until, until wisdom Now, before I examine the path of wisdom and this true middle way, let me spend a little time examining the other way of avoiding the true middle way, which is what I call the ostrich way. It could also be called the way of the fox. Uh, If you remember the the famous uh, 
old Greek fable by Aesop about the fox and the grapes. Here was this fox uh, wishing to eat from the grapes uh, that were hanging up there. And he jumps up and he cannot reach them over and over again. And then he said to himself, well, anyway, they were sour. This is sour grapes syndrome. It's a sour grapes loophole which chooses ignorance instead of, say, humiliation or failure. The Buddhist texts understand this role of ignorance very well indeed. Somewhere there's a dialogue between a commoner called Visaka and a nun called Damadina. Actually, as it turns out, the notes say that Visaka was uh, Damadina's ex-husband. And now he comes to his ex-wife, now a nun, now a bhikkhuni, as they say, and addresses her and asks her for advice. He addresses her as a lady, for whatever reason. Lady, says Visaka, what underlying tendencies underlie, underlies, sorry, what underlying tendency underlies pleasant feeling? What underlying tendency underlies painful feelings? What underlying tendency underlies neither painful nor pleasant feeling. And Damadina answers, Friend Visaka, the underlying tendency to lust underlies pleasant feeling. The underlying tendency to aversion underlies painful feeling. And the underlying tendency to ignorance underlies neither painful nor pleasant feeling. Ignorance. Ignorance is what keeps us going over and over again the dependent arising circle. Well, sequence, if you wish. Always wanting something else. Ignorance is, oh boy, that didn't work or whatever. That relationship didn't, uh, whatever, deliver. Let me try another one and another one. That piece of chocolate wasn't good enough. Let me try another one and another one. Circling all over again. Ignorance is the way of the ostrich. Looking up in the dictionary, I find this fascinating little word. I've never used it or heard it. It's ostrichism. Ostrichism. Defined as refusal to face facts. 
I would add, refusal to see things as they are. Now, the fox was deliberately deceiving himself. But very often it's true. The deception is initiated by others. We are fed misinformation. Can't resist going to the Spanish literary tradition here, which, of course, I was bombarded with in high school. Uh, there's a, a classic work called in Spanish El Lazarillo de Tormes, de Torre, Tormes, Tormes, right? Which is about a, the central character called Lazaro engages himself, takes a job of being a guide to the blind. But guess what? He doesn't guide them. He doesn't help them. He, he really rips them off. They couldn't see. He's looking after his interest, not for his client's. What this guy Lazaro does in this small scale is also perpetrated in a large scale by the propaganda machines of political and economic systems all over the world who find it so convenient to keep us blind and ignorant and then proceed to sell us a bill of goods. Just as I was uh, walking into the hall yesterday, somebody mentioned to me that she had been, she was a refugee from the German Nazi regime. I felt a kinship with that because I grew up in Argentina under a dictatorship that was uh, not as bad, of course, as Germany, but, uh, but it got its inspiration from there anyway. So I had a taste of what a blatant propaganda machine can inflict on us. But the flip side of that is that it was so brazen that it only worked for the converted. Most of us knew it was all full of lies. In fact, at that time there was a, an underground press that flourished. dangerous occupation. It's true to pass it on and to do it. In fact, my father was, I don't know whether this has been revealed before, but he was the editor of one of the major underground little newspapers and passed from hand to hand. And he risked his life unquestionably. Fortunately, he was not caught. How are things for us here today? 
in this department. Is the mainstream media informing us truthfully or deceiving us? I can just pose the question. Certainly I'm not going to attempt an answer to that. And like any, in any circumstance, uh, right-minded people can assess things differently. But I can only share the gnawing sense I have that there's something amiss with much of our media today. So it was for me very sobering recently to get a hold of um, a talk by Bill Moyers, whom some of you may know from PBS, where he had a program. A program, by the way, he was the first one to publicize John Kabat-Zinn's stress reduction method to the wide public. But what's important here is that Bill Moyers knows uh, firsthand of the workings of the press. And I'm going to take the liberty of reading to you some of the things he said at a conference made this year. Just a few excerpts. Now, he starts saying one reason why I'm in hot water, that's because he was uh, having a, a big battle within PBS. I won't go into the details. One reason I'm in hot water is because my colleagues and I at now, that's the program, don't play by the conventional rules of beltway journalism. Those rules divide the world into Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives, and allow journalists to pretend they have done their job instead of reporting the truth behind the news, if they merely give each side an opportunity to spin the news. These rules of the game permit Washington officials to set the agenda for journalism leaving the press all too often simply to recount what officials say instead of subjecting their words and deeds to critical scrutiny. Instead of acting as filters for readers and viewers, sifting the truth from the propaganda, reporters and anchors attentively transcribe both sides and spin invariably and this of the spin, sorry, invariably failing to provide context, backgrounds, or any sense of which claims hold up and which are misleading. I decided long ago that wasn't healthy for democracy. I came to see that news is what people want to keep hidden and everybody else's publicity. In my documentaries, whether on the Watergate scandals 30 years ago or the Iran-Contra conspiracy 20 years ago or, or Bill Clinton's fundraising scandals 10 years ago, 
or five years ago, the chemical industry's long and despicable cover-up of its cynical and unspeakable withholding of critical data about toxic products from its workers, I realized that investigative journalism could not be a collaboration between the journalist and the subject. Objectivity is not satisfied by two opposing people offering competing opinion, leaving the viewer to split the difference. Without a trace of irony, he says, with, with a lot of irony, I must say, <laughs> the powers to be have appropriated the newspeak vernacular of George Orwell's 1984. They give us a program vowing no child left behind while cutting funds, funds for education, for educating disadvantaged kids. They give us legislation cheerily calling for clear skies and healthy forests and give us neither. And that's just for starters. In Orwell's 1984, the character Syme, one of the writers of that totalitarian society's dictionary, explains the protagonist Winston. Don't you see that the whole aim of Newspeak is to narrow the range of thought? Has it ever, ever occurred to you, Winston, that by the year 2050, 2050, you're getting there, at the very latest, not a single human being will be alive who could understand that such a, such a conversation as we are having now, the whole climate of thought, he said, will be different. In fact, there will be no thought as we understand it now. Orthodoxy means not thinking, not needing to think. Orthodoxy is unconsciousness. Well, he goes on, but I don't need to say much more. Just, just a little appendix to what uh, Bill Moyer says. This model of opposing sides, opposing viewpoints, period, is now being applied systematically to academia or trying to apply it systematically to academia. There's a moving underway to denounce the so-called liberal bias of university professor and demanding equal time to the opposing views. So, if you teach evolution, you need to give equal time to the opposing side. If you claim that there is chloral warning, you need to give equal time to those who vociferously claim the opposite. The same with any perspective on history, politics, where those who are behind the movement, this movement, have a stake. The result 
education can become a meaningless charade. The truth gets buried under the conflicting spins. This is not the middle way. This is uh, the halfway or more specifically the owl's way. It inhibits inquiry and makes us believe that all is well. It's, in other words, the way of ignorance. Now, didn't Damadina, back there in the times of the Buddha, as I was quoting, saying that ignorance underlies all the in-between choices? Well, no. She didn't say that because I quoted her incompletely. Let me go on. Because Visaka, her former husband, asks Damadina, Lady, does the underlying tendency to lust underlie all pleasant feelings? Does the underlying tendency to aversion underlie all painful feelings? Does the underlying tension to ignorance underlie all neither painful nor pleasant feelings? And she answers, Friend Visaka, the underlying tendency to lust does not underline all pleasant feelings. The underlying tendency to aversion does not underline all painful feelings. The underlying tension to ignorance does not underline all neither painful nor pleasant feelings. And so, to gloss it a little more simply, there is a possibility of abandoning that tendency to ignorance where it's present. And of course, when it's not present, it's not present. It doesn't even have to be abandoned because it's not present. As simple as that. When we don't polarize, or if we polarize, we don't lust after, we simply feel pleasant and pleasant. That's it. We don't lust after, we don't cultivate an aversion towards, and when it's in between, we don't go into ignorance, into the ostrich way, we don't hide our hand in the, head in the sand, then there's no problem. Then we can access the true middle way. Word deception doesn't get into the act. How do we find this true middle way? How do we find our way to the truth of things? One way is self-guidance. 
Monks, said the Buddha in his last moment, be lights unto yourselves, be a refuge unto yourselves. How do we recruit the mind to be a light unto ourselves? The key is proper training, very clearly. The Buddha in the scriptures used as example the training of elephants. Very appropriate example for his times. I picked up earlier today as I was given instruction the example of a seeing-eye dog particularly because it was so close to my experience since my daughter and her family trained this dog named Carrot. And as I went on this morning, there were two basic commands that I highlighted this morning, but three total commands in the instruction book, the two basic ones given to this puppy was sit and leave it. Sit when the dog was moving about anxious, just, just come down. And by golly, she got it. She understood it. And leave it when when the puppy wanted to chase after this or that, leave it. Imply you don't need it, just just stay. Wouldn't it be wonderful if our mind responded as well as Kara did? It's a little harder with our mind. But it's possible. With Carrot, it took uh, maybe half a year or something like that. Also, she stayed uh, for a whole year to really confirm the training. I suppose if we did a a year retreat, we'd probably be there too, you know. Although, of course, our mind has been so educated at chasing not so much after things, but after thoughts. But if we can bring it to be present, it becomes a reliable guide. I mean, just just think of it. This dog, this simple dog, a puppy that grows up into a dog and can guide a blind person through the hazards of daily life. And the basic training was that, sit and leave it. And then, yes, the dog also got a little more technical training, too. Suppose that as we train ourselves in the practice with this basic command, sit and let go. Sit And every time we see ourselves chasing after something, let go. 
See the tendencies coming up, whatever tendencies there are, lust, aversion, ostracism, you know, ignorance that is. And catch the mind red-handed in the act and say, drop it, leave it. This mind is capable to guidance into the true middle way. No question. No question. True, the task is made more complicated because we need to guide ourselves not just uh, during the sittings with the stuff that comes uh, well, sometimes it's overwhelming but uh, it's relatively straightforward relatively I should say but how about guidance in the world How do we steer steer ourselves clear of being deceived by others? The beauty of the true training of the mind in practice is that as we get proficient, we get smart, clever, wise, to catch our mind in the mind of deceiving us, the mind also learns by the same token to catch others in their attempt to deceive us. When we see ourselves buying into violence, we can easily notice that this violence dovetails with our own inner violence. When we hear the voices of hate stemming from one or the other side, it doesn't matter. One of the warring factions say, say, death to the infidels from the jihadists. Or, as our president said not that long ago, about those same jihadists, bring them on! We, we can recognize that as part of our own inner tendencies to violence. And we know 
We've had enough of that. We know we don't want to find ourselves there. Or if we do, if, if, if that carries us, we can recognize the suffering that that brings to ourselves and if we look outside, to others as well. And when we hear the invitation to go the way of the ostrich, to hide, we can also recognize our own tendencies to hide, to avoid. And we don't want to be there either. We don't want to bury our head in the sand. Instead, we go and investigate, as good journalists do, even if we're not journalists. But we're still, in a way, we are journalists of our lives. We write the journal of our lives. And we can recognize the rim, the ring, the, the vibes, as the, some people are fond of saying, of the voices that help us do so, that help us investigate. Like I recognize the voice of Bill Moyers, for instance, that helps me. As I recognize a, a voice I'm very fond of and I can not help myself from mentioning it. Amy Goodman and Democracy Now! You've heard me rave about her. But, you know, it's, it's my take for others. I'm sure it's other voices. I just... it, the, the question is not to... It's not a pursuit of one opinion and one truth to the exclusion of the other. What matters here is the pursuit of that which, which we are ready to hear, that which needs to be revealed to us at each moment. And different voices ring true for different people, absolutely. And, and according to where we are. So the next step we take, again, depends on where we are. And whose light can guide us depends on wherever we are. But what really matters is to understand that the quality of the light that guides us, that can guide us, can only be described with the word love. Not offering this as a 
an explanation, please. Not as a concept, but even as a, a word to hold on to. But when we are there, when we are touched by it, we know that it's an opening of a floodgates that allow us to embrace, to be one with the whole world.